This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Well, we've been giving you some updates about the virus. Clearly, it is of concern to investors. It's of concern to the people who run colleges and companies and all of us just as human beings. So let's check in, get the latest with Dr. Shelley Hearn, director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Public Health Advocacy, part of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Of course, the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Mike Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg Philanthropies and founder of Bloomberg LP, the owner of this radio station. She joins us on the phone from Charleston, South Carolina. I love Charleston, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Gorgeous. So I'm going to start there, Dr. Hearn. Tell us what life is like down there, because anytime we're talking to somebody outside of our little bubble, as it were, we want to know what's going on. Well, it, you know, we all have our bubbles all around the world, yeah. but uh, Charleston, you know, you can always count on good food and lovely people. So it's 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 not a bad bubble. It's not a bad bubble, but let's talk about it. I have some family down in South Carolina, just outside Charleston, and I know the numbers have been tough in terms of the virus. Well, the number South Carolina is still struggling. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you are tracking around the country, we are seeing different surges, different uh, uh, improvements in, in places, and it really kind of boils down to how seriously people are taking public health measures. And unfortunately, just like uh, variations in in food from the south to the north, we're also seeing variations in the acceptance of mask wearing, uh, the care with social distancing. And so that's what's going to keep this virus alive and well around the country is if we get complacent uh, and put our guard down, it it will return. Well, you know, can I... Just a follow. I mean, you are so involved in time in terms of, you know, understanding health in cities and communities. You know, Jason and I care that there's, you know, one thing, you know, wear a mask. That's one thing we see repeat over and over. But there's also that idea of, you know, taking care of your community. I mean, this is largely what this virus is about. That's why you wear a mask. It, it is. I mean, you know, we're hoping for vaccines. We're looking for other kinds of therapeutics, but the the real important element is even if those come on board, the absolute best thing we can do for our families and for our neighbors and our entire kind of economic thrivability is to really practice these basics in public health. It may not be sexy, but that's actually what's going to make the biggest, biggest difference. And if we all did this together uh, and did it, you know, universally, we could probably really dampen this down, uh, get ready for a tough winter, and do much better. I worry so much about our economy mm-hmm. that if we if we focus in on just stemming and, and suppressing this virus by community measures, it's what's really going to help open up our, our ability for strong, healthy commerce down the road. So, Dr. Hearn, talk to us about the public health system, because, you know, Carol and I have talked on this program a lot about this notion that the virus has served to accelerate so many things 
for good and bad. It, it has forced us to deal with some things that maybe we didn't want to deal with, and, and now we have to. And especially when you pair it with what we've seen in terms of a real reckoning around systemic racism and some of the deep, deep inequalities, some of the great chasms that we've seen. And having spent a lot of time in South Carolina, having grown up in the South, I know that a lot of that is so apparent there um, in your state and even uh, in Charleston. What do we need to do at this moment where we do have something of an opportunity to start to close that gap when it comes to public health? Well, it's a it's a brilliant question. It is the the exact one that we need to focus on. So just like, uh, you know, a healthy company needs good roads, it needs good education systems so that the workforce uh, is ready and prepared for the job. We actually need to have that same kind of capacity in our public health system. These are, and, and the good thing of the pandemic is bringing alive, you need to have epidemiologists. You need to have labs. This is every day. It's not just when, when a, a, a virus is spreading, but we use those tools all the time to keep us healthy and well and actually thriving in terms of, of wellness and long, longevity in life. And that comes down to uh, a, a public health system that can do that disease tracking, laboratories, the strong staff. And we've actually been cutting those very core foundations in the last 10 years. This isn't something new. Right. It's been an equal opportunity to neglect over the last few years. And, Jason, just to your point, we, we never modernized this back, you know, from really 50 years ago. Yeah. and. If we're going to throw a bunch of money, which we absolutely need to do, into fixing the public health, don't just fix it for COVID. Fix it for what is actually killing us and creating one of the least healthy nations in the country. Focus on chronic diseases also. It's the same infrastructure, those epidemiologists, the disease tracking, the laboratories. You design it for the full picture, including you strengthen those agencies like CDC, so that they have the authority to deal with what are some of those underlying causes, which in a lot of cases is economic. Mm -hmm. uh, it is the financial stresses that um, uh, some of the undergirding of why people aren't eating healthy or don't have safe roads to travel on that's causing us to be the least healthy, wealthy nation. So, Dr. Hearn, um, we were talking about the importance of really – reworking, updating, improving, bringing to the 21st century, you know, our infrastructure, our healthcare infrastructure. Having said that, did our infrastructure fail us, not just the physical infrastructure, but the political infrastructure in the nation's capital? So what I will say is that we have failed public health for decades now. It's actually been uh, a relatively nonpartisan issue of equal opportunity to neglect. We put a lot of money into uh, investigating uh, therapeutics for diseases, but we don't put the money into understanding what causes those diseases in the first place and how we can best create uh, a healthier nation. If public health is doing its job right and it's, is positioned right, we're keeping people out of the sick care system. We're keeping out of hospitals, out of doctors' offices, out of uh, you know spiraling pharmaceutical costs. It's it's one of the best bangs for the buck, but we haven't really done the proper investments 
uh, with that kind of mindset the way that other countries have. And that's, that's what we've neglected. So, Dr. Hearn, as we look ahead and, and we seek to seize this moment where, as you rightly pointed out earlier in the conversation, we're going to spend a lot of money. We're, we're going to direct a lot of resources toward public health. What's the first place, generally speaking, that a hospital administrator should be looking toward? You talked about those chronic diseases and, and treatment thereof, but how do we spend the money correctly to start to tackle this? What's, what's the low-hanging fruit here, if there is any? You bet. So here's what we need to do. We, we have health departments, which are actually our frontline defense, and we rarely talk about them because if they're doing their job, you don't see them. And those health departments need to be invested in not just for COVID response because we've had these things before. We've had SARS, we've had anthrax, we throw money at it, we do a little tiny fix, and then Mother Nature or terrorism or someone throws us a curveball and we just fix that little, that little, you know, we kind of strapped on a Band-Aid instead of how about a disease surveillance system? that tracks the health of uh, respiratory diseases. So whether it's COVID or asthma, which is one of the number one causes of hospitalization, lost school days, uh, absenteeism, but we actually don't even track that nationally. We don't have the proper basics. What's the health of the community? Where are our big problems? When we see a spike, go in and investigate, catch it early. Uh, Whether it's chronic or a short-term infectious outbreak, we could do such a better job if we would just do that core investment in the public health system, not the healthcare system. What's your hope that that happens? I do. And actually, here's the silver lining. The business community has really gotten it, that that they have been hurt, they've suffered, they've each had to, we've got some of the companies that are creating their own contact tracing forces, that's a government job. That's a government responsibility. But we didn't have enough uh, staff in place. We don't have the proper numbers. We've been cutting uh, year after year after year. And when I, I think that you'll see some of the top leaders stepping up and saying, sure, we can do contact tracing, but it's not our core competency. It's just like good roads, just like good school systems. We got to have a good public health system that keeps things operating. That's not our job, but we need to be out there advocating that that we build those systems right in the first place, so that we're all healthier, wealthier, and well. All right, we're going to leave it there. Really enjoyed talking to you. Come back and visit with us, please, Dr. Shelley Hearn, director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Public Health Advocacy and the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She joined us on the phone from Charleston, South Carolina, a terrific city. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. This is one of these stories that people I barely know are emailing and texting me about because it is just that good and really speaks to something that may have been missed or uncovered or undercovered in this whole sort of economic carnage. And that's the term that this writer uses in his story. Talking about Ben Steverman, one of our favorites, a go-to guy when it comes to really understanding the personal aspect of economics. He joins us on the phone. We're also joined, of course, by Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. 
Joel, set this up for us. I I love this story. So we started talking about this one a couple months ago because we just felt that uh, the character that Ben read about, who's at Harvard, his name's Raj Chetty, was one um, of all the people that we w- were wondering what he was going to be doing during the pandemic. Um, he was he was one name that we just really wanted to know about. And so we talked to Ben because Ben has done some amazing coverage sort of in this space before. And uh, when we put them together, some magic happened, and that ended up being this story that's in our equality issue. And and I'll let Ben speak to it more more closely, but basically uh, uh, Mr. Chetty and, and his team of about 40 people at Harvard have tried to get a God's eye view of, of data during the pandemic. And the tool that they have assembled is basically, I think, unparalleled in, in presenting uh, just how real the carnage is. And on that note, I'll turn it over to Ben. Ben, how bad is it based on the data that uh, Raj and company are assembling? Yeah, so they pulled together all this private data from all these companies, which has never been done on this scale before. And um, you can really see down to the neighborhood level, and you can see these neighborhoods, um, especially wealthier neighborhoods, where wealthier people live, that is. Um, you can see what's happening to small businesses. What's happened to small businesses in March and April is like they're down 70% in terms of sales. Some, some neighborhoods in midtown Manhattan, you've got, got 80 90%. Um, the sales are down and the, 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 the tracker is able to then kind of track that. Okay. The dollars aren't coming into the small businesses. So that's then what's happening to the workers and you see the employment rate for low income people, lower income people really fall. So these are the people that, uh, do your nails and, and, uh, you know, pour you beers and serve you food at restaurants. Um, all these people have been, been at, at, you know, unemployed uh but you can also see in this tracker that moment when those stimulus checks arrives it's a day by day week by week state by state neighborhood by neighborhood tracker so you can really see that like the precise moment when the those um checks arrive and you can see spending by lower income people really really increase but the thing is a lot of them were spending money online not in person and um, and and a lot of wealthy people or wealthier people, just the top twenty five percent or so, are staying home and they're not they're not spending still. You know, six months into this thing. I gotta say, Ben, one of the things that we talked about on our morning planning call today, when we knew we were going to do this story, and I, and I should point out, it's been among the most read on yep. the Bloomberg from the get go on this Thursday. But our producer Paul Brennan pointed out, there's a line in your story: "The American dream is dead." Um, and talking about Chetty's work, as he proved with exhaustive government data showing today's workers can no longer expect to earn more than their parents did. I remember my parents. I'm one of seven kids, you know, nine people, and it's amazing what my parents did, but they wanted even more for us, you know, and I think we've done that. But it's it's kind of depressing to think that that's not going to be the case potentially for a lot of generations uh, in our country right now and a lot of people in our country. Totally. And, you know, the, the reality is, is, really, is really awful, but the way that he's been able to show these things is really interesting to me. Um, this, is, this is a uh, big data. He's, using, he's basically using big data, and that's really revolutionized economics in the last 
10 years mm-hmm. or so because he doesn't have to build a theory or a model for, for what's happening. He can actually dive into this these huge data sets of tax data, census data, and see individual people and see what's happening to them over their lives um, as they grow up and ha- have careers and retire. And he's been able to really, sh- he's really proving that, that, that what's happened over the last, say, 40 years to the American dream. He's also shown the barriers that really exist um, for black Americans, uh, even privileged black Americans, in terms of being able to match their parents' incomes. And so um, you can see racism, you can see education and how great educations can really help people. A great teacher can really have a huge impact on someone's career. So that's that was his background before he went over and dropped everything and started studying the pandemic. But it's, it's one using these giant data sets to really prove the reality out there and really pay attention to the, the, the places where um, we're falling short as a country. And one of the ways that he's able to, to build this tool is obviously the, I mean, it's all about the inputs, right? And the data that he's able to get. And that's also, you mentioned this earlier, Ben, that's what makes this tracker so unbelievably effective is that he's got all these sources of data that he can basically aggregate that have never been sort of assembled in this way before. How did he go about getting that? And and why was anybody willing to give it to him? It's a great question because this uh, idea of he's basically been using private data right he's been using um mastercard is is giving him data um intuit Mm -hmm. a bunch of other companies some of them you maybe haven't heard of but there are a lot of different companies that have have really interesting proprietary private data but the challenge is a getting them to hand that over and you know they're handing over aggregated anonymized data so there's not much of a danger of a privacy breach but um, one of the reasons he's able to do this is because he has this background using all this IRS and tax, uh, t- t- all this tax and other data, government data that's super secret. So he has some credibility from that. But there's also been this moment in the economy where these private businesses, they also want to see us um, you know, recover. They also want to see um, the economy get back on track. So they've been way more willing uh, and open to his approaches. And he's still looking for more data. He's still reaching out to folks, trying to find more data because he sees this as being sort of the, the next frontier for economic analysis. And and this could really be a, an awesome tool, not just for, for the, studying the national economy, but think about a local problem in your neighborhood or like think about a um, natural disaster hits a particular right. state. You could go down and drill in and see like, where where is the places that where are the places that really need help. Right. Um, it's, it's really cool. Now it's a and terrific story. figure out the best story. policy for right. any moment, any given moment in time. And tailor it's it. Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a terrific piece of reporting. Thank you so much for bringing it to us. Ben Stephen, personal finance editor for Bloomberg. He's back in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Sorry, we're not there to greet him in person. Also joined by Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. One of the quotes that really jumped out at me, Darren Walker from the Ford Foundation, Talking about Chetty, he understands that growing inequality asphyxiates hope and makes it impossible for people to dream and believe that their children will have better lives. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, so much going on in the world of politics. So, so much going on. So, who do we need to turn to, Carol? Yes. One guy, Rick Davis, partner at Stonecourt Capital, former Republican strategist, and also a Bloomberg contributor. So lucky to have him in the family. He joins us on the phone from Virginia. All right, Rick, 40 days out. Uh, 
I can't imagine that anybody would have predicted this is where we were going to be, but I think you probably could have said that every day for the last few years. What do you make of this moment? And let's start with this notion of a peaceful transfer of power. I can't believe we're talking about this. Yeah, that's the least likely concern we have for this election. Uh, We've had success for 200 and more years of transfer of power, and we, we won't have that problem this time. I think one of the suggestions that was sent by Republican lawmakers on the Hill today was we're not going to let there be anything other than a peaceful transition of power. So if, like with Nixon, uh, Senate leaders from your own party have to go to the White House and say it's time to go, bud, um, I, the, the message I got today was they're prepared to do that. So That's- you feel better about what it, it- – based on what you heard, the, the response was strong enough from the Republicans to sort of quiet your mind, at least? Sure. Um, uh, it was swift. Uh, they, they, they got out there, uh, leadership, McConnell and others, uh, within the new cycle that Trump uh, started this debate. And of course, it's not the first time we've ever heard this from Donald Trump, but certainly it was a little more emphatic this time about not counting ballots. So uh, I, I think that the leadership in the Senate stood up today and said, you know, this this will be an orderly transition. We will not go backwards on our democracy. And uh, and I would suspect that um, that that if there is a win for Biden in the general election, um, the Senate uh, uniformly will stand up and say, you know, let's let's enter into a transition. Well, sure, because they've now got potentially control of the Supreme Court. Well, I think that the Supreme Court decision may be decided long before the election. Uh, yeah. It may be uh, a de facto uh, uh, confirmation process, right? They're going to speed it up as fast as they can uh, in the committee. Uh, and it wouldn't surprise me that they try to have the vote even before the election. Now, almost all of the major legislation that the Senate has is not going to be acted upon until the lame duck. Mm-hmm. So certainly this could happen, too. But they do run the risk in Arizona and Georgia, where those two seats or elections for the Senate are are being done to fulfill a vacancy. And those literally could turn over before the end of the month in November. So I don't think they want to run the risk that either one of those flips. But as a Republican strategist, Rick, I mean, that's the power, right? That the Republicans, conservatives, will largely have potentially control of the Supreme Court by their appointees for decades to come. I mean, that's the power, right? Well, arguably they do now, right, yeah. Carol? I mean, like, right. Fair this enough. was always the intent of the Trump administration, but really the quiet work that McConnell's been doing for a long time. I mean, right. you know, he will tell people that his legacy will be a conservative federal bench uh, from the Supreme Court on down. And you've seen the incredible pace with which they've filled vacancies uh, on the federal bench. So uh, really, this is going to be the story for the next 25 years. Yeah. So setting aside the procedural, let's talk about the political side for the Democrats. Rick, because procedurally, they ain't got much. But politically, what's the playbook here? Well, I think for the Democrats, it's a little dangerous, right? I mean, arguably, there's a case to be made that there was an overreach on Kavanaugh, you know, the last Supreme Court nominee to be uh, put on the court. Um, If you have a majority in the Senate, as the Republicans do, and it's pretty clear with the vote count now that they've got the votes for whoever 
Donald Trump uh, appoints. And, of course, people matter in this case, so that that's still yet to be seen. Uh, if it's going to happen anyway, um, uh, you've got to gauge what you're going to get out of it politically. Uh, right. right now, arguably, Biden's making progress on Trump's base in the suburbs. Don't screw that up with a big fight on a uh, on a uh, on a, a theta accompli essentially, right? Right. And and look, a lot of these uh, uh, people who may be considering voting for Biden, who voted for Trump in 2016, uh, may be pro-choice or maybe pro-life. And 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 you're threading the eye of the needle, especially if the the nominee to the bench is you know one of the nominees who has a strong pro-life record. Mm. Uh, would you rather have a president in place or make a case in the next month before the? Uh, before the hearing. So I, I think there's very little to gain. Uh, uh, I think there's a base element to this where they've got to look like they've main, the Democrats have to look like they've maintained some semblance of base politics, but they're not going to pick up any votes at this stage uh, by putting on a show and trying to hold up a nominee. Rick, let's talk about Cindy McCain, obviously the widow of John McCain. You worked on his presidential campaign what does it mean that Cindy McCain endorsed Joe Biden? You know, I think it speaks to two big issues. One, obviously, uh, an advantage for Joe Biden to get such a high-profile Republican family uh, to endorse um, his candidacy. But two, uh, Cindy was out of politics, right? Since Senator McCain passed away, she has really stayed out of politics. Uh, obviously, um, uh, with Donald Trump in the White House and, and sort of his regular, irregular outbursts about Senator McCain even after he passed away. Uh, she's kept her, her thoughts to herself and is not engaged in any kind of political endorsements or responses to President Trump. So she comes at this with no baggage uh, toward the president, but uh, a willingness now to sort of break with the Republican ranks and, uh, and support Joe Biden, who she's known personally for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Rick, before we let you go, just one more quick question for you, which is, and you alluded to this earlier, going slightly down ballot into the Senate. You know, these special elections are in Arizona and Georgia specifically. What else should be are are those the key races to watch? What are the key like one or two Senate races that we should be watching, given that so much hangs on the Senate now? Sure. Um, I would say there are probably seven uh, wow. uh, races right now that are would consider toss-ups in the United States Senate. And as you know the math, uh, it's only going to take four to flip the Senate. And uh, assuming that the presidency flips and the, the, the vice president can break whatever ties uh, that they need to break. But four seats flip uh, the Senate no matter who's president. And and so with seven seats up, it's it's anybody's game. Yeah. Uh, the two seats that we discussed in Arizona and Georgia are actually special elections, right. and uh, and so uh, their their new members, whoever it is, take office uh, as early as the the middle to late November. So those are really key ones to watch. And of course, Georgia, a battleground state, and Arizona, a battleground state, are going to uh, be are right now very close, and the presidential campaign could weigh heavy on those races. Absolutely. All right. We're going to be keeping in close touch with you 40 days to go. Rick Davis, thank you so much for your time. Partner, Stone Court Capital, former Republican strategist, and of course, a Bloomberg contributor. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. 
how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Charles Lemonides, founder and chief investment officer at the investment manager Value Works. They focus on a value discipline, um, which for a long time has been a tough way to go in this market, but certainly as we've seen some pullbacks, maybe makes it a little bit easier. He joins us on the phone in New York City. Um, Charles, how are you? We were having a very good time in the markets lately. Thanks very much. <laughs> in other words, a pullback happens and you're like, finally. Well, it's not so much that a pullback happens as finally, but there's been um, there's been a lot of discernment in where the pullback is happening and how it's happening, mm-hmm. and that's probably a little bit overdone, and it's probably about time that that happens. Um, and look, we have to expect the markets to be very choppy for the next several months because of where we are in the world. Right. And so the where we are in the world, man, I mean, where to begin? Let's start, because we were talking about it earlier in this hour, with the election, you know, this is the sort of thing that normally, sure, we're totally focused on a presidential election with 40 days to go. But with all the headlines coming out, whether it is the president's comments last night and having to be essentially reassured by the Republican majority that, no, there will be a peaceful transfer of power, whether it is this notion that we're not going to know the evening of November 3rd or even the morning of November 4th. How much more complicated does it make it, and and how does that change your perspective on figuring politics into the equation? Your point is spot on, because my perspective is that there tends to be a very, very clear pattern around elections that once you know the winner, it doesn't matter if it's uh, which party it's from. Um, Historically, once we've known the winner, the markets have a really strong advance. And look, Ultimately, you have to recognize that whatever your political perspective is, 50 plus percent of the people liked and backed the winner. And so 50 plus percent of the people are pretty happy with the outcome. You may not be. But once we have an outcome, you know, it creates a tremendous sense of relief for at least half of the population. And the markets tend to go higher once we have a winner. The funny thing about this particular cycle is that there's a greater possibility this time around because of in voting, not because of anyone's you know, nefarious intent necessarily, um, but just because of where the world is sort of mechanically, we have to accept that there's a very good chance we won't know the winner. And that, that creates an uncertainty and a pressure on this market that you're just not sure it's going to be relieved on November 2nd. So when you look at the market, I mean, our guys, our audience really loves to know where uh, people are buying and selling in this market. What are some names that maybe have been all of a sudden new opportunities for you? I think Goldman Sachs mm. is spot perfect for for the type of name that you want to talk about right now. They have a franchise that is super solid, a valuation that is super solid, and they're in the group of financials that have been just unloved for a long time. And they're large enough as a group that they can carry the next leg of a market advance. They won't necessarily but they sure can. So, and everything else that the company has intact is like sort of, their problems are very much behind them. 
And then another company in the same vein in terms of large, liquid, well-known, well-capitalized, solid business that is very attractively priced that hasn't participated is Comcast. Their business is going in all the right directions despite what's happening um, in advertising, mm-hmm. which is pretty impressive given that specific headwind. And, and again, it's the type of company that could provide broad leadership for, for the next leg of the market advance. And I think while the market's likely to be bumpy over the next couple of months and really, really volatile, I think six, nine months from now, we're highly likely to be 10 to 25% higher than we are today. Wow. So, Charles, how do you figure in the big tech names into this conversation? We talk about them all the time, whether it's Apple, Amazon. We're hearing about some new devices today. Tesla, we went back and forth on over the past few days with Battery Day and predictions of a cheaper EV by Elon Musk. How do you sort of figure all that into this market? Well, it's very, very tricky because it's true that these companies have – great market position, great growth potential, really solid um, business uh, models. The problem is that they are very, very, very fully priced. Uh And the the bigger problem is that they may get more fully priced in the months and years ahead. We lived through the late 1990s when companies like this really captured investors' attention, and they should capture investors' attention because – they're great companies and great businesses, and they've made people a lot of money up until now. And anyone betting against them up until now has been run over, and then they backed up the bus and run them over again. Um, there's no reason to know. There's no clear when, no way to know when that's going to end. But every month and every quarter that it continues, yeah. you're sort of getting closer to Thanksgiving, and, and you're, you're the turkey. You just don't know when it's going to happen. This that pretty, wasn't a bus. That was is, a cyber truck. I was just going to say, Charles, a little dark about the bus and everything. Um, yeah, I just, yeah, I, you know, it, this is an interesting market time. And I, it's, it's with these big macro issues, whether it's virus, whether it's the elections, there's so much going on. Um, do you feel like, I don't know, six months from now, it's a very different game in the market? I think it's very, very likely to be very, very different six months from now nine months from now, maybe four months from now. Look, I'm pretty sure the election will be resolved three or four months from now, not before six months from now. And I also think six months from now, we'll be in March coming into April, um, and it's highly likely that the virus situation is much, much better than it is today. Now, who knows what happens with second wave? Maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't. But even, uh, and who knows how bad it gets, but the odds are that we're making huge strides in terms of treating people who get sick. Yeah, that's true. Controlling how many people get sick. Right. And maybe um, having a vaccine at some point. Right. So that huge overhang, that huge uncertainty is going to be, you know, let's hope it's behind us six months from now. And six months from now is like sort of a a short time and sort of a very, very long time. Right. Well, considering Remember, we've all been you know, home more than six months, you know, six months at this point. We're all getting nervous on the downside. Yeah. Right, right. Absolutely. Really good to catch up with you. Thank you so much. Charles Lemonides, founder and chief investment officer over at ValueWorks, joining us on the phone from New York City. I, I do want to emphasize that that point that he made, though. That Which one? 
I feel like for a long time it's like vaccine, 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 got to get to a vaccine. And now we're sort of saying, well, maybe there's a vaccine and there will be at some point. But really, let's just get a handle on this. Let's figure out, wear a mask, social distance, be smart. We can handle this. Right. So let's get to it. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.